The Retrograde Approach, Episode 24, Reflections on the Vascular Surgery Fellowship Exam 2022 with Dr. Vikram Iyer. Well, tonight we've got a special guest. Um, we're very pleased to introduce Dr. Vikram Iyer, set by vascular surgical trainee at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Uh, Vic is a recent graduate of our fellowship exam, and tonight we have the privilege of talking through fellowship preparation uh, for the upcoming group of trainees heading into 2023. Um, we will look through some of the uh, preparation aspects that Vic's gone through some of the courses that are available, as well as some of the challenges in terms of preparing for the fellowship. Uh, so it's my absolute privilege to um, introduce Vic to the podcast. Thanks so much for the kind words, Yogi. First of all, congratulations, Vic. Um, it's, it's, a, it's nice being on the other side of the fellowship exam. It's nice to have jumped the numerous hurdles that you've already jumped through so far in training, but this one's the big one. Um, You've, you've, you've reached um, FRAC's VASC level. It is a massive relief. So the, the overwhelming feeling is, is still one of relief. Uh, I'm allowing some joy and, you know, other things to seep in now as well. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a really good feeling. It's nice for my family to have me back. It's nice for my friends to have me back. And I'm just going to work and enjoying it these days. Yeah, that cannot be understated. I think you've you've hit it on the head. Um, I see your eyes smile in Sam's face. As a, a, a man with a young family, uh, I know he completely agrees with that as well. Absolutely. Yogi, I think everyone knows you cheated uh, in the exam because uh, fortunately, if you don't have kids, you're cheating. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it is... It, it certainly adds another layer of complexity. But no, Yogi, you pass fair and square, I know for a fact. Children that I, I'm not sure I know about, but I'm sure. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Vic, probably, probably what people want to know is uh, people who are listening to this are probably going to be studying for the exam at some point, or or pre-contemplating studying. Maybe, maybe start at the sweet spot. Tell us about when you opened uh, the letter or you logged in. Uh, tell us where you were and um, how that how that unfolded. All right. Yeah. So I uh, got the text message saying results were out when I was working in the garden. It's my sort of go-to exercise as a suburban dad now. Uh, Anytime there's anything stressful happening in life, I go out and start mowing the lawn and pulling weeds and things. So I was out there and, uh, yeah, I got the message and um, logged in from outside uh, and ran inside trailing grass clippings and dirt all over the house saying, I passed, I passed, I passed. And uh, my wife was so happy that she didn't even tell me off about the grass clippings. A rare event, I'm certain of that. Um, but I, I think, um, yeah, phenomenal effort, especially when, um, you know, once you overcome that hurdle, um, not only the sort of uh, psychological burden of the exam and what it means to you, but also the, the knowledge base for what it's required to sort of get through the exam itself. Um, so Vic, I guess um, if we go back maybe a little while before the fellowship exam, uh, a slightly different question. 
when did you start the process of actually studying for the fellowship exam itself? Yeah, it's an it's an interesting question because uh, a wise man called Yogi Sivakumaran actually said to me once that uh, the preparation for the fellowship exam isn't um, isn't at any sort of defined point. It's the culmination of really uh, five plus years of vascular experience and training that you get. Um, so yeah, I mean, little snippets of things. Certainly, the knowledge that you accrue. Uh, starts from sort of day dot, really. Um, but in terms of saying, okay, this is a defined start point to prepare for the exam itself, um, maybe sort of June, July of set four is where I started really thinking about it in earnest. You know, you make yourself a study plan, which promptly gets uh, ignored or modified a million times. Um don't get me started on study study plans. I don't. I don't think they can exist. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so we we had a group of people in Melbourne who were sitting um, or planning to sit, and so we would get together. But you know the perils, I suppose, of too large a study group or too varied a study group is that um, it doesn't really work for everyone. So that sort of um, died a natural death I suppose or faded away and uh and everyone sort of broke up into their own smaller study groups but um, can, I, can I get you just to flesh that out of it what what are the perils of a large study group because one of the event if I could uh, if I could present an advantage one of the advantages of a large study group is you hear a broad range of experiences and yeah. you get to see the spectrum of um potential options especially when dealing with different pathologies and rightly or wrongly there are no, a number of things so could i get you to flesh that out but before you say anything further sam did you hear what he said he said i gave him some great advice i just want that to be heard thank you mark it, mark it on your calendars on this day yogi uh, was uh, noted to have given someone good advice merry christmas to me <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I left out wise old man. I just said wise man. Yeah, fair enough, but keep going. Uh, so, look, uh, the the benefits of a large study group uh, are, as you mentioned, we did get a large sort of range of ideas and experiences, and, and we also sort of had this thing where we would set a time for a study group. Someone or the other would also be available. So So you'd always really have um participation in the group um but you know everyone sort of studies a different way everyone approaches things a different way and sometimes it can get a bit overwhelming um especially if you feel oh well i'm not up to speed or i'm not as good at this topic or whatever it might be i haven't read as widely as the next person who's talking you sort of can go into your shell a little bit so finding a study group that really works for you uh, and, and really works for everyone in, in said group is important. So the, the large group sort of fizzled out and uh, smaller sort of subgroups uh, were formed. And, and I think it um, sort of worked well that way for, for everyone involved. And, and, and then a, a rather tricky question, which I know uh, a question that Sam Farah loves is as well which is what's the ideal number in the study groups um 
both, uh, so sort of jumping ahead, both times that I um, studied for this exam, uh, I had study groups of three people. I thought that worked very well. Okay. Um, which, uh, I mean, I think in retrospect, Sam, that was probably our experience as well. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I think, you know, a large group, um, you're right, you didn't get to hear lots of opinions, but I think it's somewhat difficult to time manage everyone. Is who's free? When are you free? Can you log on? I'm stuck doing this. Can you wait 20? Like, it, yeah, it gets a bit too hard sometimes. You're right, there are some advantages, but. So I guess the next sort of follow-on to that then, Vic, is what did what structure did all your exam preparation take? Was it largely electronic? Was it written notes? Do you have some new uh, fancy app or program that you've come across that you'd recommend? Was WhatsApp helpful for you, for instance? So just a, if you could talk us through some of the technological things that you sort of took into account as you were preparing. Yeah, uh, so I, I bought a tablet um, because I just downloaded a bunch of textbooks onto that. And uh, I got one with a with a stylus so I could write because I found that making notes on paper, I'd just lose it. It'd get, ram you know, it just becomes rambling. Um, uh, being able to sort of highlight or annotate a textbook electronically um, was really quite useful to me. And, and that was really when it came to knowledge uh, acquisition or just, you know, the, the book learning that's what uh, I thought worked best. Um, and then we would quite often uh, just record scans or take photos of interesting scans that we had and send it to each other on over WhatsApp. So over WhatsApp, you, you would really uh, accumulate a really large bank of images, of clinical scenarios, of... Um, you know, photos of wounds or of scars or whatever it might be um, that uh, you could use for some of your more clinical prep as well. And, and you, you know, for our listeners, this would be done in an ethically appropriate way with consent obtained, with details hidden, um, because I think, you know, the, the one thing I would say to everyone that listens is the information that is transmitted between colleagues needs to be done cautiously and safely especially in the environment that we live in um you know, we live in heady times sam farrah we live in heady times so so Vic, out of all those um things you described what, what do you think were the particularly really effective ways of um knowledge acquisition and, and why i ask is and why i made that joke earlier about um the study plan is I, I do kind of think like the job we do makes it really hard to study prepare effectively just because our time, a, we're really distract, distracted. B, we're kind of our job involves a lot of kind of shifting your attention, shifting your focus quite rapidly. So, out of everything, what do you think were like the really kind of bang for buck, high value um, things that allowed you to prepare really effectively? Um, so, a couple of books. So, uh, I think Sam, you've mentioned the Oxford textbook uh, a few times in the past. The Oxford textbook I found to be very, very useful. Um, I also found going to, going to work and not being sort of almost on autopilot, uh, to be extremely useful when you actually go to work and you think about everything that you do, uh, and more importantly, why you do it. Um, I found, yeah, just going to work and thinking about what I'm doing, 
um, even the things that I've done a hundred times before uh, to be amazing preparation. I mean, I guess you're putting, you're putting yourself in the position of making clinical decisions. Exactly. Exactly right. And I think the hardest thing in your position is the stress of knowing all 40 patients that you look after, let's say, plus then also knowing the evidence for all the decisions that you're making on the fly, but also being able to defend those positions that may be slightly one extreme to the other extreme, um, potentially um, the sort of challenges between uh, your own personal preferences versus a consultant's preference. And one thing we tell our trainees is never feel... Um, uh, afraid to present your own opinion um, because there are many ways that vascular surgeons may approach a problem. It might not be the way the consultant wants to pursue management in this particular scenario, but it's important for trainees to present that as they develop and especially as they're preparing to sit the fellowship exam. Could I also get you to flesh out why you thought the Oxford textbook was a better text than the Rutherford um, textbook? Now, look, I, uh, I I use both. In fact, I quite like Rutherford. Some people told me I was a bit old and dandy for that, but um, uh, potentially Sam Farrow. Um, but the, uh, the more specific question to you is what did you like about the Oxford textbook? And this is by no means an editorial or a an advertisement forum, but just why did you like it in particular? Yeah, I, I honestly just found it a bit easier to read for my style of uh, reading and sort of keeping my interest in things. I thought the Oxford textbook did a better job at that. This is not to say I didn't use Rutherford's at all. In fact, I used Rutherford's quite liberally, particularly in areas where I thought the Oxford textbook was a little bit light or, or glossed over things. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I just found it a, a much easier read uh, than, than Rutherford's. There are a few things that the Oxford textbook uh, omits entirely and you do need to go to, I mean, not necessarily just Rutherford's but other textbooks as well or journal articles, um, uh, clinical guidelines uh, from various societies and, uh, and institutes. Um, you have to read very widely. But as a, as a sort of baseline, I thought the Oxford textbook was was a good one to just get a good solid foundation on which I can build. Yeah, and I guess as a just a follow-on from that, the the current examiners are looking at a defined list of textbooks, which hopefully will come out into the new year, because at the moment there actually isn't a list of fellowship text recommended texts for vascular surgery. What what exists on the website is the module two uh, reading list, which Sam, you probably remember from when we were little registrars at that, that oh, yeah. Yeah. we used Committed to, to memory. We, we used to go through the modules or we needed to go through the modules. And then fortunately the evolution of training happened with our cohort that went through and things have changed. But um, for our trainees listening, that hopefully will come out in the next little while in terms of what will be a recommended list. Um, and I know the, the examiners are definitely keen to make that happen. Yeah. So um, I think the things that you've touched on there, Vic, is easy accessibility, electronic, um, sort of ability to give feedback um, and sort of being in the moment at work. Can I just ask you, what did you ask your consultant colleagues to do for you in preparation for the exam? Because I feel like this is this sometimes is a bit more difficult to know what you should ask for, when you should ask for it, and how should it, you know, what structure should it take? Yeah, so I I approached 
almost all of my consultants really um, in in various hospitals uh, and just sort of said, is it possible for us to do X, Y, Z routine clinical scenario as a bit of uh, exam prep? And uh, they're almost always willing to oblige. And then also I would ask uh, when they've made a particular decision or they've chosen to do a particular thing, just ask the why rather than just saying, okay, well, that's what the consultant has said. So ask uh, upon what they are basing their decisions uh, and then thinking through as well what their contingency plans are if things go down path A versus path B versus path C. Yeah, and, and I think that's um, what you're fleshing out there is some of that clinical decision-making, which is a fundamental part of the exam. It's a whole vibe station in itself, um, but uh, I think that then influences not only your written text that you have to put down, but um, the rest of the vibes as you think about where the examiner might be going with some of the questions that they have for you. So, um, Vic, I hope not, I don't really want to bring up any PTSD here in terms of the exam itself, but you've, you've hit the books running. It's June, July. You've started reading the content. You've highlighting things on your tablet. Um, talk us through, um, talk us through a Monday to Friday workday for you. Let pick a day of the week. Um, and how did you, how did you streamline your day into making it more effective for your exam preparation? Um, look, I would just get up, I'd go to work, uh, and at work, I'd sort of start doing, and, you know, me saying all this stuff that I would ask my consultants and do really didn't kick in till maybe November or December even, because I felt like I needed to have a baseline amount of book knowledge before I could embark upon the, the nuances of clinical management and, and the why really. Um, but yeah, I would get up, I'd go to work, I'd do what I could at work. Uh, and every time I looked at a scan, because let's face it, we look at a lot of scans in our day-to-day -day, uh, jobs, um, I would sit there and talk through it in my head at first and then out loud as though I'm talking through a scan in the exam. Uh, and then, you know, I'd come home, I'd still try and you know have a bit of family time as best I could and then uh, my very supportive wife would uh, would take care of uh, all the householdy things and I'd hold myself up for one to two hours most evenings and uh, and try and do some some book learning or you know read through clinical practice guidelines uh, whatever it might be whatever took my fancy and and as Sam said a study plan is made to uh, be thrown out. So it, it very much just became, what do I feel like reading about today? And if I don't feel like reading about topic A, well, then there's a million other topics that uh, I can read about. And hopefully one of them I do feel like reading about. So just just take what you can. So how much um, per night after a kind of normal day at work, how much quality study do you think you could actually get in? Oh, look, to, to be realistic, maybe an hour. Uh, yep. on an average day an hour okay yeah which which is why i think going to work being present at work making decisions reflecting on those decisions actually makes a lot more sense than yep. taking a whole heap of time off but um Bic, were you ever an early morning studier at all before work no um uh, i'll be very 
frank about this. I don't do very early mornings very well. Um, so every last minute of uh, sleep and being in bed that I can eke out, I tend to try and do so. Um, but I am a big believer in the otherwise sort of dead time that you might have. So whether that's your commute to work or um, time where you're sort of sitting waiting for a case to start, for example, after hours, trying to use that time effectively. Um, so, you know, I would uh, listen to various podcasts or um, uh, like, <laughs> yes, like, like the retrograde approach, um, but also other, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but, you know, other podcasts from other places around the world, um, which, which also have been very, very useful. Um, yep. Listen to some of their stuff or just listen, you know, the, the, um, Methodist guys in Houston have got these YouTube videos of uh, various weird and wonderful operations and also some regular operations. So just uh, watch those. Any, yeah. Anything I could. Uh, I, all for it. Um, just a question, Vic. Did you write notes and notes? Uh, were they handwritten, computer, didn't write them, flashcards? Did you go down that path? No, I didn't really. Um, the, the notes, I suppose, that, I'd say that I wrote well when it got into heavy practice for the written exam, uh, doing mock written questions. Um, yep. So, you know, I'd formulate a clinical question and then my mock answer would almost be like I'm regurgitating what I can remember and uh, then cross-referencing with with a text of sorts. Um, and that that's more what I did rather than take notes as I as I read things. I mean, uh, just, just just to backtrack a little bit, Vic, I completely agree with you. I think all methods of education, um, whatever form or shape they take, is absolutely fundamental. There's no way um, you can sit and read a textbook day in, day out and remain motivated. Yeah. I think that's, that's a challenge. Uh, a shout out to my fellow when I was a set five, Rob Chewksbury, who's now a consultant in WA, who said to me, you've got to look at different modalities of education because um, it's just... It's too mind-numbing sometimes to sit there and just read a text over and over again to try and get that information in, especially if it's lymphedema or something like that. It's just uh, as much as as much as you and I love looking after lymphedema. Um, there's only so much of the pathophysiology after which you're like, yep, um, thank God for occupational therapists. Um, but saying that though, so um, Sam, if, I hope it's all right. Let's let's take Vic a little bit further forward, yep. and we're now at some of the exam preparation courses. Now, um, Vic, in your year, waived and happened until after the first sitting, but um, the Adelaide Vascular Trials, I think um, a lot of vascular trainees around our country are familiar with it, um, understand the role it plays, understand the preparation that's involved. But what's your reflections on the um, Adelaide Vascular Trials and your experience going through it? Yeah, I found uh, ABT to be very, very useful. Um, AVT from memory was held uh, about, I think it was 10 days to two weeks before the written. Um, and so when it came to sort of doing a full mock written paper, that was good um, in a timed fashion. Uh, and the sheer volume of clinical um, stations that you get through AVT uh, and the fact that 
potentially for the first time in mock exam conditions, you are really being put on the spot and put through your paces and having to talk things out with people you may, you know, by and large, you don't really know. Uh, and if you do, also people you don't want to look like a fool in front of because they are your friends, your mentors, um, uh, was, was a really good experience. Um, I found it very, very useful. Uh, and I would encourage all uh, prospective candidates to, uh, to attend uh, because it, it will probably be the first time where you get a, a dry run as such. And I guess an extension of that then, because um, you'd like to think all the feedback you get in the ABT and all the exam prep you do is positive. You know, Vic, you're fantastic. Vic, you're doing the best. You're, you know, you're a legend. You're a vascular surgeon already. I don't really know why you sit in the fellowship exam. You should have been a vascular surgeon as a set two trainee. You know, those are the sort of things that are running in the back of your mind, like, ah, oh, I made it. I've done it. But then you get to an exam prep course or you do some exam prep and things you're hearing are the minutiae, the small details. Oh, Vic, why don't you tell us about this? Or um, just what, what are your reflections on that? Because it can be quite disconcerting because you feel like, holy moly, I've studied so much. I know all this content, um, but I feel like I'm just getting pummeled. Sam, sorry. I was just going to say, it's a really interesting point you raised, Yogi. I think to some extent, like a lot of people who are in this profession now kind of trying to finish as surgeons, to some degree we've gone through our academic life being patted on the back, being told how great we are, and now we're sitting in the final hurdle and we're being told how crap we are, and it's a complete like, it's a complete three, well, 180 of what our current, you know, previous academic experiences have been like. And so from that point of view, it's actually really quite, the the, the vision of what success looks like is actually quite different to what we probably thought it might might be absolutely and um, and you know vic is a highly accomplished registrar trainee doctor um and apart from the the sort of academic side of you vic there's all the there's the family side of you vic so all of those things that you think are your little successes and then all all it takes is that one examiner or one day at clinic I, I just wanted to go through your mind in terms of how do you confront that as the trainee should you expect it and then how do you rationalize it because I think it can get it can weigh on your mind a bit yeah it's it's a tough one and uh, and I guess um AVT I guess prepares you for that feedback because it's the first time that certainly for me and I, and I I know they do it at wave as well um, and and so wave is uh, something is, is usually held even earlier than AVT. So hopefully the trainees coming forward will will get that experience as well. But for me, it was AVT where it's the first time where you're you're really being scrutinised very objectively um, by people who you know may know you but have got a poker face on as such and uh, and uh, just taking not what they know you from perhaps having worked with you in the past or being a friend or whatever it might be, um, not having their opinion or their feedback um, impacted upon by that, but just taking exactly what you have said, because in the exam, that's all that really matters. It's what you have said, how you have presented for that five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it might be, um, and, uh, and, and scrutinizing that. 
and and getting feedback uh, or negative feedback, shall we say, constructive criticism. I'm not going to say that anyone at ABT was sort of uh, terribly harsh to me at any point in time, but certainly hearing that, look, you really needed to do better from people. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to take his name, someone who I really hate letting down. I've always hated letting down from day one, Murray Og. Um, when I had Murray um, examine me for a long case. I think he's um, a big fan of the uh, podcast, right? At the, hey, Murray, if you're listening. Um, uh, yeah, when I had Murray examine me for a long case and Murray was like, Vic, you know this stuff, what happened? You know, just sort of say this. I know you you would normally have said this, but you said this. What's going on? You have to do better, you know. Um, was was really an eye opening. You hate letting people down, and and this is something that. Um, fast forwarding from AVT after sort of exam round one was was the thing that almost hurt the most was that you feel like you let people down uh, if you don't succeed. We're, we're um, gonna we're gonna we're gonna hopefully touch on that in just a tick. But if I can. Um... If I can just bring you back to just so outside of ABT, I know in the clinical realm, you go back to clinic or you go back to your department meeting, you go to your radiology meeting, someone asks you a question and they say, all right, Vic, tell us about the grading system for blunt thoracic aortic injury. You forget one of them. Mm. And um, deep down, all your, all your, you know, inter you're internalizing all of that. And, um, uh, you know, for me, if, if I had, if I had an, what I would do is um, I'd sort of uh, sit sit there, sort of suck it up. I did a lot of this. So like, oh, yep, okay. And then I would come and I'd find someone I could decompress with. And so that was often um, the one and only Sam Farah um, who would laugh at me um, because the man knew all the answers anyway. Um, and I would just have to sort of, oh my God, I have to get, I've got to really get to it. But I think um, talk us through some of those strategies that you utilize to try and work through or rationalize some of those, you know, comments that you might've got, which sometimes really do bite like the one that you said from ABT, but how do you, how do you work through those? I guess it's, um, you do need to, Talk, well, I found that I needed to just talk it through as you may have done with Sam, but, you know, I, I'd talk it through with um, uh, sometimes with my wife, uh, sometimes with um, with other consultants that, you know, who, who may not, who, who are not involved with the exam, who I may not even be working with um, in a clinical role at this point in time, but just people uh, who I feel comfortable talking to to just get their opinion on things. And, and sometimes, you know, when uh, their opinion on things is that, oh, well, um, the uh, uh, exam is, is is really somewhat dissociated from from day-to-day -day life. You say, okay, look, in day-to-day -day life, you know this and you know how to manage this. Just try very hard to treat the exam and, um, the questions you may get if, if you find yourself in a corner, just jump back to what would you really do in real life? Uh, and, and something as simple as that, just forget about this being the short case or the long case or whatever it might be. This is a consult that you've gone to see, or this is a patient in the outpatient clinic. What are you going to do? What's going through your mind? What are you thinking? Just bringing it right back and having someone calm you down 
say, look, this, these are all scenarios that you would probably have dealt with at some point in time. And even when you don't, when you haven't dealt with them in clinical practice for the, when you see them for the first time, you still have a process that you go through. Just try and keep your wits about you that you can go back to that process uh, and verbalize it and, and things will be okay. Don't let the, the moment get to you. Don't be defeated by the moment. Uh, and having people around who could get me to see that side of it really did help. That you're not a bad doctor just because you stuffed this one thing up or whatever. Yeah. And, and I think that's valuable advice um, because uh, the fellowship exam is a series of stations that are back to back over three days. And you really can't hold one part of the exam or one question or one answer as being the be all or end all. Um, all right. So, Sam, I think maybe the next thing to talk to Vic about, because we've spoken about the fellowship exam in different ways yeah. over, the, over the last few years, but Vic, you, you can, you've, you've kindly um, allowed us to have you on to really talk about a more difficult and different situation, which is confronting failure in the fellowship exam. Um, and, and, and maybe before we delve into that, I think our own reflections on obviously doing some preparation with Vic before he sat the exam was we really felt that Vic was really quite ready and he had all the um, all the tools at his disposal to to um, sit the exam um, in the first sitting and do well. But um, unfortunately, Vic, um, not really what happened on the first sitting. Yeah, and, and sorry, Vic, so then let's talk about the immediate aftermath, if that's okay. Uh, and again, I hope this doesn't bring back bad memories. I think it really is a great learning opportunity for our trainees um, and hopefully an opportunity for them to also talk to you that's a right. little bit about it as well, which I think, which is what we're, we're here to really be supportive of the fact that this is a difficult exam and we're all very grateful that we um, can get through it. Um, if I can quote your boss um, that you work for, um, Mr. Wagner, who would say, you will eventually get through this exam. So um, take it away, Wick. I mean, what's that emotional roller coaster like immediately after you get those results? Yeah. So look, once again, um, getting those results, I was I was gardening and it was raining and uh, I got it and it wasn't you know it wasn't what I wanted and uh, I just said to my wife, look, I failed. And um, I was you go through. We learn about these five stages of grief, right? And it is a grieving process that you really go through. Um, and, and it's as much grief for yourself as it is for, for your family and your friends and, uh, and everyone else uh, impacted by it. So, I mean, denial, no, you don't really go through denial that it happened. I mean, you might be like, oh, how did this happen to me? I, I must say that I, um, uh, the first time around in, in my heart of hearts, I actually uh, thought that I did fail because um, my final day or the final station of the exam I was an absolute train wreck and I came out of it thinking who who am I and why did I say all those stupid things like what what happened um so so I, I won't say that I was like totally blindsided by it I had a very bad final station um and um 
to to be honest, I actually thought I had a bad final couple of stations, but as it turned out, it was just the final station. Um, but yeah, you you sort of go through this process where you say, okay, well, uh, I've let my family down. I've let my consultants down, everyone who's sort of helped me. They've been so supportive. I've let myself down. I've got to go through all of this again. Um, in the back of my mind was also, oh man, last year there was only one sitting. The second sitting got cancelled because of COVID. Is is this it? Am I going to have to wait a whole other year to go through this? You go through all the worst case scenarios, right? Um, and um Eventually, after you get angry, you get your feedback uh, in a letter, um, you, you get a list of stations that you failed. And certainly when I got mine, I was uh, surprised to see only one station on it and then angry to see, angry with myself more than anything else to see that it was the very final station on the Sunday morning. Um, and uh, then you sort of sit and stew and you just want the feedback to come through and then you get the feedback. and. Um, you sort of sit back and you replay the station in your mind, but your own recollection of it's always a little bit uh, clouded as well uh, because of the emotions that uh, are involved. And you read the feedback and you say, oh, well, I'll, I'll agree with that. Some of this is, is stuff that I don't agree with, but it is what it is. Um, you, get, you get very angry at times. Uh, but again, talking to people who have either been in the same position or people who have uh, potentially, you know, been examiners in the past, people who are who are current examiners, you know, that everyone was very, very supportive throughout and uh, encouraged me to sort of, you know, talk through and um, somewhat explore the, um, the torrent of emotions, I guess, that, that I was feeling at any given time. Uh, and, and eventually a time comes where you can uh, uh, look at, a textbook again or look at your your mock questions again and uh do so without wanting to throw your your tablet or your computer uh in anger at the wall and uh, and just get on with life really well i guess one of the most difficult parts when you get this document that tells you about the station that you might not have got the mark that you needed uh often as you said you go through it you replay it you try and figure out what could you've done differently what could you have potentially phrased better uh, often I would argue a lot of you a lot of the guys that are sitting for the exam have the content so then how do you like I think how do you then rationalize taking that fail mark to a pass mark especially when you feel like you know the content and then also what was the time frame between say you know look I'm just going to stop for a bit I need to decompress I need to forget about study for a bit and then when did you pick your books back up so um, to answer sort of part one of that was um, really you get the feedback and you sit and you replay things and you, and you work it out and you try and really work out where did I drop the ball? Um, what can I do better next time to make sure that this doesn't happen again? And for me, having talked to a lot of different people, having sort of replayed things admittedly with the sort of tint of emotion that um, comes with it. Um, I came to the conclusion really that I lost it because I threw in the towel based on what I thought had happened the previous day in previous stations. 
And this is something that people can tell you, um, you know, you, Yogi, you and Sam, you've told me this, uh, you know, a few other people have told me as well that really um, every station or every part of every station that you do in the exam, once it's done, you really have to just move on and uh, just if it didn't go well, say, okay, that bit didn't go well, but I have to do my best for the next bit and just keep moving forward, keep thinking forward. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think I know anyone who sat the exam and thought every station was a breeze. Yeah, no. You're going to hit a hurdle at some point. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I, had, I debriefed between each fiber session to be honest with you i just i i found that i just needed to get it off my chest i needed to lift that weight i needed to give that to someone else and um i needed to just keep going because yeah i felt like if i took the burden of the of my qualms into the next sitting or the next fiber i would have felt terrible about the way i performed and um did you feel you did that during your first sitting that you sort of were able to unload that onto someone or did you change that when you sat the second time? Yeah. So that's, that's something that I changed between sitting one and sitting two. I didn't really do much of that um, or any of that really after the first sitting um, or during the first sitting. Um, and, and it was something that <clears throat> talking to a few people who did get through uh, that they said that they they found very helpful um, and uh, something that they um, that that helped them keep moving forward and looking forward rather than dwelling on on what had been. So I I actually thought that my um, short case didn't quite uh, well really didn't go the way I wanted it to, and I thought that that's where you know the the game was lost and that I did so badly. Uh, so I didn't sleep much the night between nights between sort of day two and day three and the bit that i did sleep uh i had a nightmare i suppose we'll say which i can still remember very vividly where uh, i was at a pub drowning my sorrows because uh, i failed and uh the examiners um came and you know a set, a set of examiners came sat at the table with me and kept asking me questions until i woke up in a cold sweat <laughs> that's, um, a, that's, and- a te- that's a terrible dream it was awful. It was awful. And and I still remember my wife will uh, uh, remind me, well, was reminding me of this um, as well, just about the benefits of continuing to sort of try and think positive. So I went to the final station of the exam thinking, oh, what's the point? I've failed this already. I'm just going to go say whatever comes into my head here and come home because it's all sort of pointless anyway. And um uh, getting out of that sort of mental rut and uh, being positive, trying to sort of uh, start every single station, every subset of every station or every substation, or whatever you might want to call it, um, off on the right foot is so important. And second time around, um, that's something that you know I, I made a very, very conscious effort to do. So you raised a few um, interesting points there, Vic, particularly that technique. And the way you sort of approach each station, but do you do you feel that there were some other kind of um, and I'm going to say technical because I think Yogi and I would both agree that your knowledge was really good going into the first sitting, as we've said already. Do you think you had some 
particular deficiencies in your technique that allowed you to not get through the first time that you can identify and share perhaps? Well, I think um, so answering the question that is posed and, and not talking around you, not talking around it, but also trying to keep a clear head under stress so that you don't ramble um, is, is something that I worked very hard on. Um, and, and Yogi, to answer the second part of the question you posed, how long did it take me to sort of get back into things? It took me somewhere between four and six weeks to get back into it without feeling, um, you know, nauseated every time I uh, thought about the exam. Um, but having said that, the, the knowledge component remains, right? The, the idea of preparing for the exam is that the overwhelming majority of the, the content is filed away in your long-term memory to sort of be at your fingertips uh, with, uh, with minimal further revisions. So that part of it was sort of easy to get back into, but it was just really the second time around focusing on maintaining that level of knowledge um, but rectifying the the approach that I took. Right. Could I ask you, Vic, whether you um, found that between two sittings you had a change in your pace in terms of how you answered questions in the exam? Yeah, I think I probably slowed things down um, for uh, sitting number two. I think that's where uh, in in sitting one, I felt very very pressured. In in certain stations, uh, I will add, um, not not for everything. Um, I felt very very pressured, and and I think uh, trying to almost be pressured into going too fast is uh, was really my undoing in part. And even if those are the stations that I didn't fail. The fact is you you don't know that until after you get the results, right? Uh, and, and if you're going to sit and ruminate, you'd prefer to ruminate on, uh, um, I suppose, less things that you may have said that uh, uh, perhaps aren't things that you wanted compared to having this very pressured speech and flight of ideas and there being lots of stuff and you say, well, I came off like an idiot. Really good points you bring up there, Vic. I think one of the things I worried about, and maybe Yogi, I'm not just directing this question towards Vic, but you as well. How does one get that feedback that you need to to know whether or not, you know, you're answering things sensibly, you're sounding okay, you're not rambling? Like, how do you actually, you know, how do you how do you know that you're on the right track? I think there's two ways you can answer this question, Sam. One is the pre-exam and one's the in-exam situation. So in the pre-exam scenario, it really, for me, it only really came together in the week leading up to my fellowship exam. Because yeah. until that point, I was just too, I was, I was on edge. Um, I was trying to get all this content in. Um, I put something in, something would fall out, put something in, something would fall out again. And it really took until the very last moment for me to sort of feel comfortable in my own shoes. Hey, you know, next year I'm going to be a consultant vascular surgeon. Let's start thinking like a consultant vascular surgeon. Yeah. Um, and a colleague of mine at work said to me, Hey, actually you, your level of knowledge on this particular problem is out of this world. Like I don't, I don't know this. I like asking questions because I'm learning from you, but uh, even I didn't know this and you like, 
holy moly, I know stuff that's just ridiculous. Like the nuance of some paper published in 2020, the year that we set our exam. If I knew something that was that was in publication that my colleagues didn't know that I could use to justify my decision, I felt I was ready. I'll be honest with you, though, in the exam, there's no inkling of how you're going. And I'm so grateful in many ways that that is the way it works, but I'm also hateful of the idea that that's the way it works. Because like Vic said, a lot of the people that examine you are people that potentially were once your trainors or people that have mentored you. And the hardest thing is for them, I think, is to sit there and keep this poker face whilst at the same time being like, I'm uh, not sure that's what we asked, but okay, let's see where this where this goes. So I think the real challenge, I think it's a challenge for them and for you. And in the exam, you're not getting any feedback. I think internally, though, you're validating your responses by being able to defend the position that you take. So, hey, you know, I want to do it this way because of the following reasons. And you get a sense of if you're going in the right direction because the examiner then poses a slightly more challenging question back to you, you answer that. And then you you get that next question and you're answering that um, like the Nerva Kuntz, uh, Sam Farah. Um, you know, if you're really sort of breaking down thoroscopic sympathectomies to that degree, I think you're doing fine. One, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer my own question, which is as you know, one of my favourite hobbies. Um, I think um, coming back to what we we're talking about earlier about some of the deficiencies in having a large study group. If you hear something stupid in a large study group, you're probably not going to say something. But if you're sitting with someone or you're studying with someone or two that you really trust and you're really close with, you're going to say, that sounded really stupid. Why did you say that? You know, whereas, and I think that that's why a slightly smaller group is probably better because you build up that trust and that relationship where you feel comfortable saying, Yogi, don't say that dumb whatever because you sound ridiculous, as we said I mean, to each other multiple times. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, Sam, to take you back to your point, some people would argue that this podcast is about you asking questions and answering them yourself. But on a further follow-up to that, I agree entirely. I think you build a certain degree of companionship with the people you study with. And yeah, uh, I mean, uh, Sam, it's the reason you and I still catch up over Zoom to do these podcasts because... Uh, it's a relationship that's binding. I mean, yeah, it 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 is what it is, and we missed each other once the exam was over. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, Vic, or you agree with all that? I I do agree with that. I think um, you know I'll uh, always be uh, indebted to a few people from my my study groups. So uh, shout out to Lucy and Emma, and to uh, David and Anna. Uh, for for the the great times um and and really um pushing each other uh and feeling comfortable enough to say when someone said something a little bit you know stupid that they may not want to repeat uh in exam in in the exam setting uh, was very very helpful great times in inverted commas so vic um as we get closer to the end i think we've been going for a little while what do you think's um, one thing about the? I think we asked Cal for the same question last time. Um, hey, what's one thing that you know now that you wish you knew at the start of the exam process? For me, um, the thing 
uh, which I mentioned before, is that really just recognize that what you think has happened in, in a particular station and what the examiners feel uh, may be two totally different things. So don't get in your own head. If you're going to be defeated, be defeated by the exam content. Don't be defeated by yourself. Uh, and, and if I could go back in time and tell myself this uh, in mid-May, uh, I, I would probably have had a much happier winter. I, I think the other thing that you said, which I cannot stress enough, is I think having an emotional support person, as crazy as that sounds for this exam, can be helpful, especially mm. if or where the sort of personality types that will worry about the type of answers that we make or put forward. And um, whilst there are many different types of emotional support people and potential animals that can also provide that role, um, the reality is that you need someone that's going to be able to take that burden off you yeah. for the moment that you need to then progress onto the the next station. Um, and picking that person appropriately before your exam can be helpful. So I think that's the other take-home message, Vic, which I think you've stressed uh, through the discussion. To so, yeah, I mean, the, the second time around, after every station, I was um, either messaging you, Yogi, or, uh, or Thaven, shout out to Thaven, really kept me sane, uh, calling a few people. I spoke to Sam, I spoke to uh, one of my men other consultant mentors down here in Melbourne, Mark Lovelock, just... You know, calling people and and having someone with me, um, Dave Mitchell, who I mentioned before, uh, with me doing the exam. I think it was it was almost helpful to both of us that the exam was away from home uh, at that time, so we could go and we could just decompress with each other, grab some pizza in or Nando's in in the evening, whatever it was, uh, and do that. And and having um, that approach really did help me. The second time around, it kept me moving forward uh, and not sort of thinking back. Uh, I think, Vic, this has been a fantastic discussion and uh, really um, a really important discussion about some of the challenges in terms of sitting the fellowship exam, but also meeting the challenges once um, you go through it once and you don't, you find out you don't pass. Uh, I think there are many hurdles in life um, to get to this point. Uh, but none's so bigger than the fellowship exam in, in some people's eyes. Um, however, I think, again, if I can quote your current consultant uh, colleagues, um, in particular, Dr. Tim Wagner, everyone gets through. You've just got to remember that this is part of the journey and this journey started when you were a set one trainee. It didn't start when you were a set five. It's a long process. You've made decisions all the way through that and been supported to make decisions all the way through that. But now you're demonstrating the fact that you can function at a junior consultant level, which is fundamental to why this exam is so vital uh, for all of us and why it's such an important landstone, a uh, um, sort of milestone in, in our careers. So Vic, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. We are so happy that you're, you know, part of the um, part of the sort of final group of trainees that have come through this year. And we, we can only wait to sort of commiserate, celebrate all our own personal challenges and cases as we go forward. Um, but no, 
well done. And uh, I think Sam agrees with that. Absolutely, Vic. And I look forward to seeing the um, the uh, new stresses that will appear in your life as you <laughs> journey from registrar to junior consultant. Um, no, it's been uh, it's been it's been fun watching you um, get through, and um, you've uh, worked really hard. So it's it's great. 